They both did the silly arms up thing. Not 10 <laughs> seconds left in the freaking game. Then he started getting really busy. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Rearview Movies, where we are looking at old films with new eyes. My name is Scotty Williams, and it's my honor to discuss movies with Trevor Kirkendall, our industry expert, and Heather Williams, our romantic comedy expert. How are both of you doing tonight? Doing well. Yeah, good. Wonderful. Well, it uh, looks like we've gotten a really good role. I think we need to check on Heather and see if she has been bribing or doing anything otherwise to Computron because it helped her out this time. Yay. And give us How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days, released on her birthday, in fact. Thanks, Computron. <laughs> uh, but uh, before we get to that, I did want to kind of talk about a little more broadly the issue of romantic comedies because obviously the genre itself is pretty old. And uh, maybe have a little fun, do some listing stuff and a little back and forth. So, Trevor, let's talk about what are your top five uh, romantic comedies? I love making a list. It's always good to to do that. When thinking of top five, I got to do a wide range of things, right? Five is narrow. You're right about that. I know you yeah. like you like to do yours in tens. In tens or I mean, this is just this is a really broad sense. So if you want to talk about the best romantic comedies ever, I think you got to start with When Harry Met Sally, right? Yes, um, I, I would absolutely agree with that that was made in 89 and ever since then every romantic comedy has just been trying to copy that one including the one we're going to talk about today but before then they weren't all this boilerplate <laughs> not that harry met sally was but ever since then they have been mm -hmm. um no particular order or anything but we'll say when harry met sally was on there another one i really like because i was very surprised at how it turned out because I didn't really think it was going to be that way when I first saw the poster and heard the title. And that's The 40-Year-Old Virgin. That would definitely be top five for me. Mm -hmm. I remember the first time I saw that poster, I was with you, Gotti. We were in the, the movie theater, and it's just that goofy picture of Steve Carell with the giant grin kind of looking off to the side. No background, just like a red background or something. You just busted out laughing. It was before Carell had really taken off, but we had started watching him on The Office, right? No, this was this was before we had really started watching that. We were still in okay, school. Okay, it was before that even, this yeah. Was, this was... Uh, uh, like Daily Show Corel. That's right. Yeah, that was yeah. about it. Maybe, maybe uh, Bruce Almighty had been out mm -hmm. by then. Yeah. When we saw that poster, The Office may have just started, mm -hmm. and I don't think we we weren't watching that when we were still down in school. We didn't pick that up until the next year. Well, the title um, was incredibly jarring. I think that's part of what made yeah. me laugh. It's like it just really and his and his goofy face because it's just kind of like, well, if anybody's gonna be a forty year old virgin, it's gonna be that guy. It's right? gonna look like him. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so another one I'm very fond of is Moonstruck. Mm -hmm. I think that's. One of the best ones there. And then we'll go really old school here. Annie Hall, because mm -hmm. it doesn't get much better than that, right? Sure. Um, and then one of my favorites that nobody ever seems to remember, and I bet you guys have never seen it, is The Apartment with 1960, mm -hmm. Jack Lemmon. And uh, it won Best Picture that year, uh, directed by Billy Wilder. Hmm. Uh, really, really great movie. So I highly recommend anybody that hasn't seen it, get on it because it's very great. It was one of the earlier roles for Shirley MacLaine. Mm -hmm. Just a really fantastic movie. It's about Jack Lemmon. I guess he plays a guy that works in a corporate insurance company in New York. And some of the higher executives use his apartment for extracurricular activities, let's say. And one of the women that he's drawn to is Shirley MacLaine, who ends up also catching the eye of one of the executives so there's kind of this little love triangle thing there but that's a risque right. subplot for the 60s yeah. man yeah fantastic movie yeah uh it has the the dubious distinction of being the last fully black and white movie to win 
Best Picture up until you could either say Schindler's List, Mm -hmm. but there's elements of color to that or The Artist in 2011. Both of which were kind of cosmetic choices to be in black and white. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, there's my five. Heather, how about uh, how about you as the uh, probably the leading expert here in all things romantic comedy? Oh, this all is right, way well, different than my list. <laughs> <laughs> well, mine will be different from yours too. Well, most of mine are pretty modern, but I've got you've got mail on my list. I've always loved that movie. One of my all-time favorites. Definitely, maybe. I love that movie. I could watch it again and again and again. Is that with Mandy Moore? Uh, Ryan Reynolds and the woman that did um, that married Sasha Baron Cohen, Redhead. Yeah. Ilsa uh, Fisher. Isla Fisher, yeah. Mm-hmm. That is a very good one, yes. Yeah, I love that movie. I have 27 Dresses. And surprisingly, I did not... Uh, I really like this movie. It's kind of weird, but 50 First Dates. I think the premise is unique. It's a little off kilter, but ultimately it's very, very sweet. I like uh, Drew Barrymore. So that one uh, is a very surprisingly good movie. Um, it is. I remember seeing that and was being very, very <laughs> impressed by it. I really like that one. I like how you include You've Got Mail and 27 Dresses because there's two other ones that are similar, maybe. Mm-hmm. Okay. That, I would, that I would that I would maybe say I like a little bit better than those. Okay. Um, rather than you've got mail, I would take the other Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan, Sleepless in Sleepless Seattle. Sleepless in Seattle. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. We were just up in New York City back in May. I was up there with my mom and my sister, and we were trying to figure out which building we were going to go on top of. Mm-hmm. And we were like, oh, we should we go to One World Trade Center because that's the highest point in New York City. And my sister said, no, Tom Hanks didn't go there. <laughs> um, and then 27 Dresses, I think it's the same author of The Devil Wears Prada. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. A really great one, too. I do love that one. But fantastic choices. Thank you. Mm, absolutely. And, and you know, Fifty First Dates, surprisingly earnest for an Adam Sandler comedy. It's because true. usually Adam Sandler comedies are so kind of distorted. The characters have one or two of these traits that are so outside the mainstream that I actually, you know, Fifty First Dates pretty pretty grounded as those movies go. Well, I guess in my top five, there are two movies that have already been mentioned in y'all's in in out of yours, so I won't uh, repeat. But I will say I had Forty Year Old Virgin is up there at number five for me. Was that Judd Apatow's first one, or was that I'm trying to remember what, what was a, that in his sequence? As a director, yeah, that was his first. Mm-hmm. And Steve Carell was again absolutely hilarious in that. That film. was the star maker for him. Mm-hmm. You know, w- without that one, then The Office wouldn't have continued you know? that's true because part yeah. of the office's popularity was it got picked back up after they saw you know some of those stars and other things well i think like mm-hmm. they they had already been renewed and then that came out and then they got a boost in their in their second season thanks to that mm-hmm. and then the show just ended up being incredible anyway that everybody right. then kept coming back for more on that one but steve definitely helped bring that audience into that show in that second season Mm-hmm. My number one on the list is When Harry Met Sally. Uh, I would agree with that take as well, uh, because I think it's one of those films that did so well in its, its genre that I kind of, as you mentioned earlier, films start to try to parody or repeat their success. We're almost on Halloween, so the kids were asking me in my class about um, somebody gave me a little Jason Voorhees toy. And I was like, yeah, you, you wouldn't believe it. But the director of Friday the 13th just straight up admits that he was copying Halloween and was trying to do Halloween, but gory. And the Blair Witch Project is a film that for years after people tried to make that found, like they essentially created a found footage horror genre all on their own. And I think when Harry met Sally kind of created that thing that people tried to follow. My other three that were not mentioned by either of you, the second one for me is 10 Things I Hate About You. Mm-hmm. A really good Heath Ledger performance. See, I'm not as big into that one as a lot of people are. I don't think it's all that. 
but mm-hmm. <laughs> I get it. So yeah, well, and it's a it might be Heath Ledger, it might be the Heath Ledger sort of sort of effect where you're like, man, you know that guy passed away. Gosh, he was so good in those movies, and you know then you remember that film. Number three for me is Groundhog Day. Yeah, I was debating putting that one in there too. That one mm-hmm. is really really good. If I had ten, that probably be in there. Mm-hmm. Um, that's fantastic. Now there's another one that I want to mention. Speaking of Groundhog Day, that's yeah. really really great is a more recent movie called Palm Springs with Andy. Yes. Samberg. Oh yeah, yeah we've Andy seen Samberg that. Yeah. And um, Krista Kristen Milioti, I think the, yeah. the mom from How I Met Your Mother. Yeah, yeah, the mom. That's kind of the same idea but i like they do it in a little bit different way mm-hmm. uh, i was thoroughly impressed by that one when i saw it, and that made my best 10 of the year mm-hmm. came out no i agree that movie was very good and, and I, I think i told heather the same thing there was really no understanding of how bill murray was going to get out and the film never really entertained too much the idea of how does he get out as much as it just bill murray having fun with it but they explored it a little more in palm springs and i did think that was entertaining yeah. and honestly i think groundhog day kind of pushes the definition of a romantic comedy because the romantic subplot is there but the main plot of the movie is he just realizes he's repeating the same day over and over again. Speaking of pushing the definition of the genre, my number, the last one I put in, which I had in the number four was Coming to America. Technically mm-hmm. a romantic comedy, but maybe not necessarily, but it is a movie about a guy that's trying to get a girl and it is hilarious. Not yeah. in the traditional sense. Yeah, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't classify it as that. I see Wikipedia does, but that wouldn't be my first thought. Yeah, but I would say if it, if it does fit the category, it's absolutely there because it is pretty trademark Eddie Murphy and Arsenio Hall action. But that that's my other one. And I guess it goes back to does the romance have to be the main plot of the movie for it to count as a romantic comedy yes because you can have a comedy that has romance in it but it's not a romantic comedy right, right. So, which which for me probably just dis- disqualifies groundhog day and coming to america but yeah well yeah i mean groundhog day i guess you could call it that but that one is probably still a bit of a stretch too because he's not motivating himself based on his attraction to andy mcdowell right right it starts off with selfish reasons but then turns into just making everyone's life better and part of that means that he needs to get with with her in the end so you know after making after trying to find out what time was too early for flapjacks of course right yeah (laughs) we still got one more chance because this movie is 30 years old so we do have one more shot for december to maybe get that one oh i'd be fine with that it is vintage bill murray yeah so we'll see well then i guess that uh jumps us right into the subject of our film how to lose a guy in 10 days that's our episode for today trevor tell us some Mm -hmm. of the some of the the tail of the tape our credits on this film yeah yeah so we got how to lose a guy in 10 days movies 30 years old it was released february 7th 2003 hey happy 19th birthday heather thank you <laughs> and happy 20th to me about to say and trevor's birthday yeah. as well this was a red letter day for humanity yeah all right yeah for those that don't know me and heather share a birthday just a year apart um yeah. let's see so how to lose a guy in 10 days starring kate hudson matthew mcconaughey adam goldberg katherine hahn who's really famous now Mm-hmm. Annie Parisi, I don't know if that's how you pronounce her name. Thomas Lennon, good old Lieutenant Dangle. Shalom Harlow, Michael Michelle, Robert Klein, and Bebe Newworth. Let's see, this was directed by Donald Petrie, who you may know from his work uh, um, with Mystic Pizza, Grumpy Old Men, and Miss Congeniality. And this was written by Michelle Alexander, Jeannie Long, and Kristen Buckley. And I like how Scotty always includes who does the music for these movies, because that's fantastic. Music by David Newman. And it should be pointed out 
out that in terms of writing credits, Michelle Alexander and Jeannie Long are in this film with writing credits because ironically, the source material that inspired the script for this film is literally a 100 plus page picture book, which I believe was written solely as a comedy book on, hey, here's things not to do to get a guy to stay with you. So did they get writing credit or did they get story by credit? It was listed as written by, so I'm, I'm not sure on the specifics. Let's see. They're listed as the book, Michelle Alexander and Jeannie Long, so they don't have the screenwriting credit, but they get mm-hmm. the book credit. The screenplay credit goes to Kristen Buckley, Brian Regan. It's not that Brian Regan, though. Oh, it's not? Oh, gosh, I thought it was the same guy. Nope, not a stand-up Brian Regan. There's a there's a screenwriter, Brian Regan, and uh, yeah, not the same guy. Well, you know, it, it is what it is, <laughs> I guess. My fault. Heather, uh, give us some of the budget and critical information for How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. Sure. This movie had a $50 million budget, and it grossed... In- in U.S. and Canada, it opened with $23 million and overall grossed $105 million. Worldwide, $177. And okay, so we were talking about this a few minutes ago. In 2003, it won a BMI Film Music Award, David Newman. And Kate Hudson's performance was nominated for a Stinker's Bad Movie Award for Worst Actress. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm sorry. I'm having a real hard time believing that. I, I put this in as a as a goofy joke because IMDb lists this for some reason. Yeah. Uh, this is a kind of a parody movie awards thing that was made up by two guys that used to be, I think they were ushers in a movie theater and they created this society of really bad awards. And I think they would send ballots out to the general public. Their last awards were given out in 2006, but they did apparently take aim at Kate Hudson. I pointed out for Trevor as a funny joke. They also gave the biggest disappointment award to the Blair Witch Project in 1999. And they also bestowed the most overrated film award on two titles that I think we saw together, Syriana and Babel. Wow. Syriana and Babel. They gave that what? They gave them most overrated film awards in their respective years. Huh. Uh, no. Yeah. I think it was kind of an amateur outfit anyway. They they would make up a lot of different awards. They had yeah. one award named for a child that was like worst performance by a child in a movie. Mm-hmm. Fakest male Terrible. accent. The Oscars of bad movies is the Golden Raspberry Awards. Yes. The uh-huh. Razzies. The, the Raz- so these guys just want to be like that. So they're, yeah. the golden, gotcha. they're the Golden Globes to the Razzies. Exactly. And they don't exist anymore. They went out of business in 07. Yeah, but the Razzies are still around. The Razzies are very much still around. Yep. All right, I'll move on to Rotten Tomatoes then. Rotten Tomatoes gave this a score of 42, and the audience gave it a score of 77. Matthew McConaughey and Kate Hudson are charming together, but they can't overcome How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days, silly premise, and predictable script. I Mm -hmm. disagree. 42 is a pretty starkly bad score for Rotten Tomatoes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Surprisingly, like I mean, we we was... reviewed a couple of stinkers that were higher than forty two. Yeah, I don't get it. I mean, gosh, one scary movie higher than forty two? Probably. I'm trying to remember, but yeah, we we reviewed a couple. I thought that was a huge huge difference. Audience at seventy seven, I can see, but Rotten Tomatoes yeah. at forty two is a little surprising to me. I'm surprised. I think. I mean, this is a good movie. Like, I don't understand. It just doesn't make any sense to me. Well, so since all of us saw this 20 years ago, um, let's talk about what we thought about it at the time, and I guess we'll start with Heather. Loved it. Always loved it. Went to see it at the movie theater with a couple of girlfriends of mine when it came out and um, loved it. I mean, we just all thought it was fantastic. The uh, dialogue is witty. Of course, you know, we get to see Matthew McConaughey with his shirt off. So completely needless in that scene, for the record, completely needless. But what girl is going to complain about that? At least make it fit the script like a scene. Heck, the scene where they're on the motorcycle and the little truck comes by and splashes it with uh, splashes with the mud. He could have taken it off there. It would have totally made sense. He just, I don't know. Scotty, I might these scenes aren't for you. And take my shirt off, uh, you know, just to, just because I feel like it. 
these scenes that, aren't for you. That's like a good the, point, just like though. The, just like the Top Gun volleyball scene. It doesn't make any sense, but it's not for you. That's yeah, right. but even that one still fits inside the script. It's not like they just walked into a locker room and took their – well, even a locker room. It's not like they just walked out in public and took their shirt off. Like Matthew McConaughey is in his workplace – in his office with the blinds just wide freaking open. But I don't well, know. yes, saying. but as I pointed out, he drives a motorcycle to work and maybe he got sweaty. So he had to change. Just goes don't, to prove a woman will shoehorn anything into a movie if it ends with a shirtless male. Don't rationalize it, sir. I'm trying not to. Okay. Uh, so, so Trevor, tell me your, your impressions. <laughs> okay. So my first impressions of this movie, I rented it after it came out. This was at a time when I was working at Blockbuster. So I was R. trying R. to blockbuster. Rent... Yeah, RIP. You know, if we happen to have any really young listeners out there, Blockbuster is <laughs> a video store where you used to go and pick out videos to watch on the weekends. It was fantastic. It's not around anymore. I used to just try to watch everything that came out, not so I could be a well-educated employee, but because I wanted to ramp up the number of movies I saw during a particular year. Mm -hmm. So I was just adding one to the list. Uh, I didn't think I would like it. I just watched it by myself in my room one, mm -hmm. one afternoon or whatever, and thoroughly enjoyed it, was pleasantly surprised by it. And that was my, that's the only time I've ever seen it um, was, was that time. So all I can remember about it for 20 years was that I kind of liked the movie. So that was 20 years ago, though. <laughs> it was a while ago. Hey, fun fact for all you young listeners uh, still who are Googling Blockbuster right now. At one point during the height of their power, Netflix was a small company and Netflix actually offered to sell themselves to Blockbuster. Wow. Blockbuster was like, yeah, we don't need the Internet, that fad. <laughs> Yeah, the, even when Netflix was using the internet to send movies to people, like DVDs in in a, in a set of three, they were still like, nah, nah, we're good. So at a minimum, the Netflix logo might be Blockbuster Blue today, but I guess that's about all that would have changed. You can thank Netflix for Blockbuster not being around anymore. That's right. Yeah. Or, or Blockbuster's incompetence to read the future. Yeah. Yeah, just not adapting to the industry as it was changing. Yep. Um, so for me, I saw it February of 03 as well. I think I, I want to say I saw it on a date and, uh, you know, I liked it. I thought it was entertaining. I, as romantic comedies go, I think there was a little more to this than kind of the average romantic comedy at the time. Because, you know, you watch a lot of these at certain points in your life and you say, well, there's this, there's this, they're going to fall in love. Oh, how's it going to happen? But this was a little more, I, I enjoyed it a little more at the time, uh, definitely in my recollection. That's that's what I enjoyed about it. So I guess to jump right on into some of the notes at the time, I did mention it was based on a picture book. I'm curious, uh, some of the behaviors that Andy does exhibit in the film attempting to chase Ben away were directly from the book. Do you want to guess which one? Ooh, let me think. I'm just going to defer to her this entire episode. So I'll, I'll, just be on, I'll be on mute and you guys can just like. Contacting mom behind his back. I don't think that's a chase away behavior. Like, because I think most women wouldn't jump to that. Giving him uh, ridiculous nicknames. Yes. hundred percent. Yeah. Let's see. Um, well, that, that might be where we can get involved, Trevor. Did you have a, did you have a significant other give you a silly nickname? No, no, I've never had that. <laughs> I did, but luckily it wasn't as bad as what happened to him. All right. I'll ask you about that later. <laughs> Off the record. <laughs> oh, let's see. <clears throat> I did attempt to get a copy of this book before we got to the episode, but uh, wound up not doing it because I didn't feel the need to pay for the book to be shipped here on Amazon. But one thing I will point out pretty much immediately because I thought it was starkly different was Andy's baby voice. Mm -hmm. So the baby voice is specifically mentioned as something that women do to drive men away with it when they talk in a baby voice. And there was to the point at certain parts where Andy was talking in a baby voice and like she would 
when she wasn't talking in the baby voice and she like, it almost, you know, gave a schizophrenic vibe in my general opinion. Yeah, it definitely did. She was all over the place. Her baby voice felt more psychotic than baby. Right. Yeah. It just been the acting choice of Kate Hudson. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that was my thing is that I thought that was a little weird and, and, you know, going to the general question of what actually does and doesn't turn off men when in the early phase of a relationship. One of them I think I would agree with was the immediate use of the L word and the immediate boyfriend title. But I will say, when in the film does she actually bust out the L word? Because she didn't say it on the first date. I don't think she does say it in the film. The first time I remember her saying it is after they have the fight when she goes nuclear at the poker game and she says, I love you, Benny, boo, 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 but I don't have to like you. Right oh, now. That's the first yeah, time she, I remember her saying did. it. Yeah, I forgot about that. And then there was the <laughs> Love Fern. Maybe she mentioned it when she brought in the Love Fern. That cannot be in the book. Ain't no way. I don't know. I would love to have any listeners let us know if any girlfriends were extremely clingy via succulents or plants. <laughs> just bring the plant on over. Yeah, I just I don't I don't think that would have. I mean, maybe a cactus or something because the cactus is small and doesn't take your apartment over. But a fern, I, I thought that was a little much. I thought it was funny. <laughs> But, you know, I mean, when you when you go back to the premise, like she's using all the the classic mistakes that women make to drive this guy away. But because of the bet on his side, he's letting a lot of these classic mistakes just roll on past him. And so she's getting desperate. Well, and and actually from that, I do want to jump over to one one interesting point that I think is kind of missing in the conversation. And it's because it would have probably fundamentally altered the movie. So. David Edelstein, I found this in a review he wrote for Slate in 2003, around the time, it was, I think it was a critical thing around the time the movie came out. He says, uh, the movie is okay, hobbled out of the starting gate because Andy doesn't go to bed with Benjamin right away. And if she doesn't sleep with him and then start in at once with the I love you stuff, the experiment doesn't have the naughty zing you've been primed to expect. Most guys will put up with anything before sex. In interviews, the director said he objected to the first script he read in which the couple did go to bed on their first date on the grounds that it would send the wrong message to his 12-year-old daughter. When you set out to make a comedy for your 12-year-old daughter, well, if you're any kind of dad, it probably won't be very sexy. And I bet Petrie is a great dad, but he is a spineless director. Huh. Thoughts? Well, if that's the reason that he changed the script, then yeah, that's pretty spineless. Yeah. Because why this movie is not for 12-year-old girls. No. No. It's not. No. No. This is... This movie's I mean, for adults. I, well, like Sex in the City, for example, that sitcom, not for kids. No. Not for young kids, but very kind of Sex in the City vibes because there are a couple of places in the film where they're talking very frankly about some adult topics. Right. But they're adults and the movie is for adults. So, yeah, it's like him saying he doesn't want to, you know, or any director saying they don't want to make, uh, you know, I can't make a movie where a guy gets his head cut off because what would my four year old think? Yeah. Right. When your four year old is old enough, he'll love your movies. (laughs) Right. Well, and and I actually do think that's an interesting point, although it's kind of an interesting line through the movie. There was a part where I was quoting the How I Met Your Mother line from Ted Mosby, where Ted is dealing with this really crazy girl, but he looks at his friends and just goes, look, she's really hot. okay." And (laughs) and he's right about one thing. Men put up with a lot of crazy behavior before perverse speaking, they get the milk. Yeah, but how crazy? Because the other thing is, I I would assume, and you guys can correct me here if I'm wrong, but if they haven't gotten it eventually, why put up with it? Just find somebody else, right? Perhaps. Perhaps. I guess it sort of depends on that, you know, how what kind of crazy we're talking about here. Mm -hmm. So I I do think that is an interesting question because obviously the person this is based on, her friend Michelle, her friend Michelle did that. And then afterwards, because her friend Michelle did do that. Yeah, so wow. And and went way overboard, like told him he loved him and everything. Yes, and cried after the first time and was clingy and needy. And then he started getting really busy and I kept calling him and calling him and then... (laughs) 
was like, come on, you have to know what you're doing. You know, that does make me think about another film since we're kind of talking about the tendency of men, Hitch as a romantic comedy. Oh, that was actually on my list. I do like that movie. Yeah. Although totally different assumptions about what men are looking for in a woman in a relationship. Mm -hmm. I thought that was an interesting point to make is that as a creative choice does it change the movie if they go to bed on the first date um i mean i guess it it could but also you know when you consider the stakes of each bet maybe not so much right Mm -hmm. i'm trying to think what it would what kind of change that would make if they did do that and honestly i don't really know i don't know if the the clinginess and everything would seem worse in that case than it does right now it's hard to say i'm not sure but then again, my opinion of this movie has changed, so I don't, yeah. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> yeah. Spoil- Here it comes, foreshadowing. I don't know that it changes the dynamic of the movie all that much because Ben is still trying to get this multi-million dollar pitch thing, mm-hmm. and Andy is still trying to write this article, right? And if he walks exactly. out on day three, now the article is about how all men are awful because they get what they want to walk out on day three. Right, that's true. So I guess it doesn't necessarily change the plot that much, although I will joke that when Heather and I were watching the film uh, for the rewatch, there was the scene where... Where you could see them like playing out this conversation where they choose not to go all the way, even though they both want to. And I joked with Heather, I said, I think they don't really know how this conversation would be supposed to go if they both decide that they shouldn't. In an ironic moment where um, a Hollywood scriptwriter basically goes against what I would say is a pretty typical thing in a romantic comedy, which is consenting adults should go to bed on their first date. At least that's what it feels like sometimes when you watch those romantic comedies. That's what Hollywood tells us. Yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm just being a little, uh, a little over jaded about it as, as a high school teacher, but I'm, you know, just what that thing is. We'll give a quick note here of compliment to Kate Hudson because appears several of her scenes in the film were actually unscripted. So a lot of her wow. work in the poker scene was unscripted. Including oh, that part- scene was amazing. Right. Sorry, go ahead. No, you're fine. Including the part where she took the cucumber sandwiches. Gross. Jesus Lord. And she takes the cucumber sandwiches and says, am I some sort of person and chucks them all over the room? That apparently genuinely surprised everyone because no one, that was not a scripted moment. They didn't know that was coming. And that's what made that scene so fantastic. I mean, Kate Hudson is fantastic in this film and that scene where she goes in and then, you know, she sticks the dog down on the poker table too and is knocking everything over. Ah, yes. The thing that's kind of like a dog. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> it's um, a Chinese crusted. Chinese crusted. Yeah, it looked crusted. That's right. No, but I do love that scene. And then she gets Ben to blow into the tissue. I'm going to bet that probably wasn't scripted either. Mm-hmm. And again, she's talking in this very high, high baby voice. It would definitely trip me out if I was dating a girl and she literally spoke in two different voices. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it's almost like she's bipolar, right? Like one minute she's this super cool, sexy, fun, like awesome to be with person. And then the next... She is, you know, putting new comforter on the bed, sticking teddy bears everywhere and redecorating the entire bathroom. She turned that up to 11. I'll tell you that, including putting some medications in the mirror that in that little medicine cabinet that by her age, she would not have needed at that point in her life. I mean, menopause medication. Are you kidding me? You know, what is she? 20, 26. Right. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Um, oh, speaking of age difference, Matthew McConaughey apparently did not almost did not get this role. The only person I could find who almost got Andy's role was Gwyneth Paltrow, but apparently they they backed out due to scheduling conflicts, but McConaughey is 10 years older than Kate Hudson when they make this movie. Mm-hmm. Is that something that you think is really noticeable in their chemistry? No, no, not at all. Yeah, that's that was the general consensus. In fact, even Kate Hudson herself said, apparently when they were discussing it, she said, my husband is 13 years older than me. What's the difference? Well, fair. I don't think that plays a role at all. And in the nightclub where they first meet, I love the dialogue there where they exchange a single word back and forth before they leave the club together. 
Yes. I mean, that was like, and I'm going to assume that that was written, but that was great. Just very witty and fun. And just the chemistry between them right off the bat was right there. Mm-hmm. Well, and they're having that one word exchange with each other where they're kind of getting to know each other. And then Matthew McConaughey is like, you know, hungry, you know, almost insinuating like, well, instead of going to where we both want to go, do you want to go eat? And she kind of like, changed her face, her body language changes. She went starving. And I thought that was actually a really, really good scene. Yeah, it was. Which uh, which brings me to a point, probably my biggest ultimate plot hole issue, which is uh, a joke they visited once and then didn't really explain or pay off at all later. Ben has prepared this completely immaculate lamb dinner that looks like something out of the Food Network. I mean, it looks gorgeous. It's got this cherry glaze. He's got uh, potatoes with it. It looks amazing. Yeah. And he's getting ready to slap it down on the table for and and she starts to cry and says, I wish I ate meat. You guys had crab on your first date. Yeah. So don't some people like consider seafood to be like not real meat somehow? I mean, I think some people do, right? Some people that want to be cool and call themselves vegetarians, but don't want to completely give up meat. They they made up a word called pescatarian. Yeah. There you so, go. And uh, yeah, that's just a uh, uh, half vegetarian to me. Yeah. So they're well, not fully committed, but they're, you know. Yeah, they're partially committed committed to it they're kind of like you know yeah i I hate eating animals except fish (laughs) yeah yeah right it's not the anything with a face sort of thing it's like well fish have a face yes um and and so does shrimp and crab but what is interesting to me is if that were a real life exchange and i had spent what had to be five or six hours preparing a lamb meal for this girl i would have at least asked oh a hundred percent and i thought about that too like every time i watch this movie i'm like yeah but what did you have the first night you went out together? So well, not everyone loves lamb either. So what a what an interesting choice to to pick. Of course, it's like high caliber, and if you cook it right, it's delicious. But not everybody likes it. So if someone comes over, it's like, hey, I made lamb. It's kind of like, uh... <laughs> yeah, yeah, probably like, a touch yeah. presumptuous on his part. Right. Very. Like, let's do chicken or yeah. maybe pork chops. Like those are right. generally safe, but. Yeah. Lamb? Nah. He was skipping straight to the big guns, man. You got to make the girl fall in love with you in 10 days. You got to prove you can cook. Right. Anybody can cook chicken, right? Yeah, I guess that's fair. Yeah. <laughs> no, I just, and, and maybe there's the opportunity to make another joke in there somewhere or at least pay it off, right? Like they're at a barbecue at the family's house and she's scarfing down hot dogs and hamburgers and just, I don't know. I thought there was an opportunity to, to have yeah. a laugh there. Yeah. I, I've always thought that too. I think that's, that's a good point. Mm-hmm. And actually speaking of that, I, I would say that the move to get you know, to move everything to the family and go meet the family. I don't know that that's a driveway move because at the end of the day, when you, I don't know about you guys, but in my convention, when you meet the family, you're, that's another step, right? Like that's another stage. Well, sure it is. Yeah. Not um, not one that generally happens on, on day five. No. No, absolutely. Absolutely right. But uh, again, a really good authentic scene. But my other major gripe with the film is why does their first love scene have to happen in the bathroom of his parents' house in the shower? Well, because uh, that's how Hollywood thinks Rome romances. Well, and I will also point out in a connection to our previous episode, they both did the silly arms up thing. As you remember <laughs> in the room when he's like arms up and he goes like this, like a four-year-old. Well, they both did the same thing. And that's not especially, I made Heather laugh until she coughed. That's why she's muted right now. But if it connects to the room, I don't know that that means it's a good thing, but that's just my general opinion. No, but no, okay. Really- I, I have something to say about that. So I think that's when it happened because they got out of the city. They went 
went to meet the family and they were just for the first time in the movie, it was like neither one of them was thinking about the bets that they were running, right? She wasn't thinking about the article. He wasn't thinking about the diamonds account. They were just like really genuine with each other. And, you know, you get that scene where they're out on his motorcycle and they get ice cream and, you know, they're just like really genuinely enjoying each other. And so to me, it kind of makes sense that that's how the timing worked out. No, maybe the place wasn't ideal, mm-hmm. but that's why the timing worked out that way. Hmm. Interesting point. Well, speaking of that, um, the runtime on this movie does feel a little, I think it's pretty tight, but there were five scenes that were part of the deleted scenes. I thought I would read them off to you and, and let you see if there's one that you think should have been in the movie or could have been. The first deleted scene was an expanded piece where Andy is doing one of her how-tos on how to dress like a model for under $50. And she's literally interviewing a model who just came off the runway, but then she finds out the model is from Tajikistan and they start having a conversation about the peace and politics in Tajikistan, which I think follows up to her writing this big piece about uh, achieving peace in Tajikistan. Necessary, not necessary? Boring. Cut it. Not necessary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In fact, somebody, I was looking at the video of it on YouTube and somebody commented, oh man, they cut out the part where she was talking with a model about Tajikistan politics. What a terrible thing. But I don't know if you're being, if I'm being honest, I didn't love that whole subplot idea at all. It's like, no, Andy should probably understand that she's at a magazine focusing on women's issues and, and most of the <laughs> women that read that magazine probably have no interest in spelling Tajikistan. That's true. Yeah. I mean, it's basically Cosmo, right? right. I mean, that, yeah. that's essentially what composure is supposed to be in the magazine and the, right. the movie. Yeah. Go work for the New York Times if you want to do those articles. Second one, Andy and Michelle talking at a pet store after the Princess Sophia encounter where Michelle is like, you renamed a part of his anatomy and he's still here. That's pretty incredible. But it's also where they find the dog. Not completely necessary. No. Boring. Cut it. <laughs> uh, Andy and Michelle after the fake couple's therapy scene where Michelle's having to kind of explain why she just on the spur of the moment suggested the trip to the meet the family followed by Ben picking up Andy for the trip to Staten Island. Now what was interesting about that scene and this is one thing I would advocate for this scene Andy comes up and she's late she was late again that would be a typical drop behavior to be late to the pickup but she's late for Ben to pick her up and she starts greeting him in the high in that high baby voice again like hi And then he says something to her and she drops the voice and starts talking normal. If you were more focused on the voice, I might say that scene is necessary. Go ahead, Trevor, say it. Boring. Cut it. (laughs) Yep. Fourth scene, Andy talking to Ben in his garage after the infamous card game scene. They talk about their family business restoring motorcycles and Ben decides he's going to take Andy out to learn how to ride motorcycles. Again, boring. I'm I'm sorry. I I tuned you out because it was so boring. I fell asleep. Cut it. Oh, okay. And last scene, maybe this is the one I would have put in if I were having to get extra time. Lauren and Michelle trying to get a hold of Andy after the Delauer party, after the you're so vain, after the blow up. Um, kind of a mirror image of when Andy went to get Michelle. Now Michelle does everything in reverse. They come out, they got the coffee, she gives her the, the dress and Andy is doing her own version of post-relationship wallowing. You know, that I could actually see keeping. I mean, it's not completely necessary, but I could see keeping it. Well, this movie's already pushing two hours, so that's already mm-hmm. asking a lot for folks to to dedicate to this kind of movie. Uh, so cut it. <laughs> Fair. Cut it. Move on. Uh, speaking of the Delaura party, the necklace, the Isadora necklace that she wears at the party. Heather, you want to talk about that for Gorgeous. a little bit? Positively beautiful. Oh my gosh. So, the, I mean, the party itself is fantastic. I'm not a big fan of the whole frost yourself thing, but, you know, I told Scotty when we watched the movie, I said, maybe I'm not a big fan of the frost yourself uh, like slogan or whatever, but having everything frosted 
at the party was actually really cool. And didn't you say that they really did have to hire the like real security guards for all of that jewelry that was loaned to them? Um, yes. And this, yeah, the cast couldn't even go to the bathroom without taking it off and handing it back. Isadora, for example, is a real set of diamonds mm-hmm. valued that after this movie was shot, filmed, uh, sold for $5 million. So at one point, Kate Hudson was wearing $5 million worth of jewelry on her neck Ooh. and a pair of 125K each earrings. And apparently for the scene, they brought in all the, apparently all the diamonds in general are real Harry Winston designed diamonds. And the actual Harry Winston bodyguards had to be hired as actors in the scenes because I think something like a total of $14 million in jewelry in total was used for that for that uh, party scene wow that's a commitment out of the film's budget isn't it yes that's huge yeah i maybe would have uh you know made some up (laughs) yeah interesting to take that step right you think the female viewers would have uh, picked out that it wasn't a real set of diamonds no some of them well do you remember uh the one they had in um titanic yeah yeah the was blue, a real the yeah, jewel of the was ocean, a yeah. real there was a real jewel and um a real i don't know what it was but it was real and then um wasn't it a ruby something no, like, i don't know it was it was blue whatever it was oh, okay Sapphire. um and then celine dion wore it to the oscars and she sang her song on stage wearing it mm-hmm. and there was a big to-do about that like how much did she have to do they have security for that or like mm-hmm. I don't know. well you know probably one or two guys uh one or two guys behind stage that are strapped up waiting in case somebody makes a move yeah but what kind of dumb criminal is going to try to steal a jewel off of somebody at a party. Wait, no, that's the plot of Ocean's 8. I'm sorry. Well, and what what kind of idiot would storm the stage at the Oscars too? (laughs) Right? (laughs) Speaking of stories that are just getting crazier by the minute. Right. (laughs) Yeah, no, I can't can't get over that. Well, speaking for just a minute to other takes on the film, Roger Ebert, who we talk about a fair amount on this this podcast, gave this film one and a half stars. Basically, to read a little bit from his review, he said, I am just about ready to write off movies in which people make bets about whether they will or will not fall in love. The premise is fundamentally unsound since it subverts every love scene with a lying subtext. I'm going to paraphrase a little bit. Let's see. Leaves one big scene for us to anticipate or dread the inevitable moment when they both find out the other made a bet. At a moment like that, a reasonably intelligent couple would take a beat, start laughing, and head for the nearest hot sheets haven. I love the way Roger Ebert and his <laughs> academic sense funny. words things. Hot sheets haven. Really? Mm-hmm. Love that. But no, these characters descend from the moribund fictional ideas of earlier decades and must react in horror, run away in grief, prepare to leave town, etc. While we in the audience make our own bets about their IQs. Uh-huh. And I'll wrap this up with Matthew McConaughey and Kate Hudson star. I neglected to mention that maybe because I was trying to place them in this review's version of the witness protection program. If I were taken off the movie beat and assigned to cover the interior design of bowling alleys, I would have some idea of how they must have felt as they made this film. Wow, that's harsh. Upon my, re- my rewatch of this movie, I agree with him completely on that this plot Hmm. is absurd okay tell us more come on the whole like love falling in love bets you know because he says that and there was a time in the late 90s and the early 2000s where we saw this kind of plot device quite a bit he's Um, all that i remember that yeah and it's painfully obvious the moment you start watching the movie what's going to happen and then you just have to like sit there and wait for it to happen for the whole time obviously if you were making a bet about somebody falling in love and then somebody else has the same bet going on their side neither of them know about it 
they're going to find out about it. And I can almost tell you, beat it's going to happen because they basically wrote this script off the whole Blake Snyder beat sheet, the Save the Cat, if you're not familiar with that. So you know when that's going to happen. It happens right when it should, right when it should. Mm -hmm. And then it's like, but now there's such a small, narrow amount of time for us to actually overcome that and come to our very happy ending. And that's where it gets really the the stupid car chase scene through New York City, the cab and the motorcycle. Ridiculous. Mm -hmm. To the Um, the music of the Gen Blossoms. Very dated. Yeah. I mean, we know from the beginning, it's like, oh, Kate Hudson's trying to lose Matthew McConaughey, but Matthew McConaughey is trying to fall in love with Kate Hudson or make Kate Hudson fall in love with him. I love with him. Yeah. Gee, I wonder what's going to happen, you know? And <laughs> well, uh, nobody goes to romantic comedies for complexity, right? They used to. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. I got Trevor going. Go. <laughs> until they tried, until everybody tried to copy Nora Ephron for the rest of their existence, right? I mean, I listed two, Annie Hall and the apartment are both best picture winners when they come out, right? Mm-hmm. I know that's, that's not everyone, you know, likes to, think about whether or not a movie is good based on how many awards it won or whatever but these two are great movies and they're very smart Mm -hmm. you know they subvert all the expectations of it right and the fact that you have very unique characters to this like Annie Annie Hall with uh, uh, Diane Keaton or or Shirley MacLaine's character in in, uh, the apartment Mm -hmm. but but then you also have really charming people like the role Jack Lemmon plays in the apartment you guys really need to watch it because I wish we could talk about it right now right no (laughs) yeah 100% well and you're right about one thing the, the supporting cast outside of Matthew McConaughey and Kate Hudson in this film. Very, very bad. Completely one-dimensional. Gosh, one of Kate Hudson's friends just has a catchphrase that she repeats like three times throughout the movie. And drama, she, drama, drama. Drama, drama, drama. And a fourth time in the deleted scene. There's a deleted scene where she says it again. Oh, jeez. Um, and it just, it feels insulting. And the same thing for Matthew McConaughey's two buddies, who for the record are two pretty funny dudes. Adam Goldberg is funny. Thomas Lennon is funny. And both of them kind of get relegated to being made fun of repeatedly. Thomas Lennon is always funny. Yeah. And they're just, I would agree that I didn't like the way the side character, I was telling they they were kind of one note, you know, the, again, the female character literally says the same thing like three times. Mm-hmm. And I thought she that does. was a, that was definitely a little much. Um, hey, I just referenced this earlier and I'm trying to find it now, but I mentioned the, the Blake Snyder beat sheet. Say yes. The cat. Yeah. I, I, it, I get it. It is okay. a book. Okay. Right. There it is. Oh, it is about writing movies. So I'm going to find the, the beat sheet we're gonna read the beats and we're gonna really pull movie on these beats and you'll see just how for how much of a formula it follows here right well while you're looking through it heather i do want to ask you a question we, we chatted about it briefly while we were watching it uh watching okay. the film would a modern journalist be able to do this i didn't really think about until you posed the question but i don't think so because as you pointed out it's basically catfishing it, right? it is like, sort of catfishing in reverse in, yes you're presenting way, yourself as a different persona but it's also like is it really though because she's not pretending to be like a literal different person she's just behaving in a particular way to drive away a relationship i don't necessarily think it's the same thing because i think catfishing is when you literally pretend to be well, right. You know. Usually you maybe that term is a little drastic because we're also yeah. talking about literally using that to blackmail or extort someone uh, generally with that kind of thing. Right. And that's not what she's doing. She's just saying, all right, what are the classic ways that women drive men away? Well, let's just use that as basis for this article, right? Clingy and needy and just the baby talk and, mm-hmm. you know, just the ridiculous things like and the love fern and the pink cover on the toilet and the and, and the sending baby him, comforter. Yeah. And sending him to get her a soda with what like fifteen seconds left or a minute left in the game? Come on. Oh, that was dirty. That that, that was, was completely dirty. That was horrible. That was terrible. And I oh 
Oh, that made me cringe. See, we would have had our first fight if you had done that to me on a date. Because I'd have been like, you can wait. We'll get a drink on the way out. No, I would have never done that because for for our listeners, I'm a huge basketball fan. So I would have never done that. And well, I love and, and we, we went to Cameron Indoor Stadium for a game on one of our first dates. We absolutely did. I took you to Countdown to Craziness. Yeah, yeah. I would tell you whose senior year it was, but I'm not out here to, to I'm not out here to um, date ourselves. Quit bragging! <laughs> Quit bragging! It's a bucket list place for many, many people. Yes, it is, and if it's not, it should be. Yeah. So one more thing I'll point out while Trevor's uh, finishing up his look here. I was just thinking about this. So Kate Hudson took the step, or Andy took the step of photoshopping and creating a photoshopped album of their family. Right. That was so weird. This would only be the second time we saw a romantic couple do this. You remember? I'm trying to now that you've mentioned it. It's a bold move to Photoshop yourself <laughs> into pictures of your children the with their real family. Bold the right word? A Michael Scott move. Oh, that's so, so bad. So I, I got it here and I was looking through it again <laughs> and there's names for them for each beat, but some of them kind of have to pull out some other parts here and we can discuss that too. Okay. Um, As we get to it, just to make it make sense because some of it you know just saying it might not bring you that whole like let you know what beat we're talking about it might be pretty visual yeah yeah so there's 15 beats the first one is the opening image page one Mm -hmm. i mean that's anything and this is all based on a 110 page script too so if it's a longer so a movie that's two and a half hours roughly or just under two hours under two hours yeah under two hours thank you one 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 minute per page yeah Yeah. so 110 110 minute movie an hour 50 so a little bit shorter in script than what we had here but not by much so Mm. think about this and heather since you know the movie a little bit more Uh you might be able to speak to to some of these things as, as they happen but so you got your opening image and this is supposed to be like where you date your first impression the tone, the mood, the type, the scope of the film, right? So we don't really have to have something huge and grand here. We all know what it's going to be, right? Mm-hmm. It's all pretty lighthearted fare, so it doesn't have to have like some real huge, massive image or whatever. Um, but if the movie's supposed to be about something big and enormous, then it should have a big and enormous image there. But it does do a lot, and a lot of people don't really put too much time and effort into thinking through what that opening image is going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, on page five, we have our theme stated. That's the second beat on the beat sheet here. And the theme can be anything, really. The movie's thematic premise must be stated by page five. So within five minutes, we know the theme of the movie. Do we know the theme of the movie within five minutes of this movie? Yes. Yes, we sure do. So the next one, uh, the third beat actually covers the first 10 pages. So one through 10, which is always really big for a screenwriter in general, because usually you got about 10 pages before somebody puts it down and picks up another one. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. nobody's got time to read the thousands and thousands of these things that come in mm-hmm. to Hollywood studios every year. So within the first 10 pages, you really have to set the whole movie up, right? Mm-hmm. Is the whole movie set up within the first 10 minutes of this movie? There are Mullins inside of 10 minutes, aren't they? I she's, think so. She's got her assignment within 10 minutes, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Well, she and, does. and Ben's got his assignment within 10 minutes, too, I think. Yep. So it's mm-hmm. set up within 10 minutes. So we're, we're doing pretty good here on the, on the beat sheet. And then page 12 is the catalyst. And this is mm-hmm. what really drives us forward here. In the book, he quotes here he specifically is he's referencing other catalysts that happen within the first well that happen on the 12th minute of the movie especially here so one of the examples he uses here is the dinner at which reese witherspoon's fiance announces he's dumping her in legally blonde that's the catalyst it probably yep. happens within the 12th minute of the movie it does that, yeah so do they pretty meet quickly yeah the, do they meet in 12 minutes here right at i think um i would say between 12 and 15 yeah yeah so pretty good 
Which brings us to the next part. This is the fifth beat. This is the debate. He says it's the last chance for the hero to say, this is crazy, and we need him or her to realize that. Should I go? Dare I go? Sure, it's dangerous out there, but what's my choice? Stay here? So this is kind of where they're debating within themselves, right? Mm -hmm. Whether or not they want to do this. She's finding him, and now this is probably their whole, that whole first date, that Mm -hmm. debate, how this is going to go, right? And maybe that's why they chose not to sleep together on the first night. Or 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 they meaning the the writers and and the director right mm-hmm. using not to put them in there like that so well and there's um, a couple of small conversations where she's like are you sure you want to do this or are you ready to go for a ride Ben are you ready to go for a ride Ben like stuff like that yeah, yeah. all so fair in love and war yeah. yeah so this is supposed to be between pages twelve and twenty five and he talks about the debate here in uh, Legally Blonde the catalyst of the fiance dumping her quickly segues to her solution go to Harvard Law but can mm-hmm. she get in. That's the question posed in the debate section of the movie. And then we spend several minutes of them trying to get her over there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we, twenty page 25 breaks into two. Break into two. That's act two he's talking about. Break into act two. He specifically says this must happen on the 25th page, not the 28th, not the 30th, the 25th. So, mm-hmm. and I won't, I won't go into all his stuff on there, but that's where mm-hmm. we end our first act. We go into the second act. We got a B story that begins on page 30. So that's our seventh beat. What's the B story here? Is there one? That's about 30 minutes in. Yeah. Well, it's the B story is going to carry on through, but 30 is about where it's going to start. So in the in the book here, he's referencing, he goes back to Legally Blonde and mm-hmm. says the B story is a relationship with uh, the manicurist. Sure. Yeah. So that's your B story. So where's the B story here? Is there one? Is there something like that in this movie? There's not, is there? I mean... Um, not significantly, no. I mean, they each have mm-hmm. their two friends from work. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's the, nothing. The, the poker game? No, you're, you're, you, those are. I, those I know are I'm still stuck on the A story, but I'm not finding anywhere that they that they diverged enough from the main story. No, is my thing. there's not. And, no. and, and that is where you need that because you need to keep things a little bit more engaging and entertaining. You can't just rest on your A story the whole time. So mm-hmm. this next one is um, pretty self-explanatory between pages 30 and 55 fun and games is what he calls this beat and we know that so the whole big chunk of the movie is the fun and game so they nailed that one Mm -hmm. i I Um, would say that was probably the bulk of the movie yeah 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 well then at 55 that's where uh that's the midpoint that's the next the uh the midpoint page 55 that's where the um that's the dead center here so mm-hmm. and this is where things can either go um up or down he says um the movie's midpoint is either an up where the hero seemingly peaks or it's a down where the world is collapsed all around the hero and it can only get better from here on out so at our midpoint there i'd say the midpoint is probably the parents house right yeah yeah mm-hmm. and that seems to be things are going pretty well so, um maybe before that maybe before that okay the the fight the poker game fight because that is where things hit their rock bottom because they oh, break up. Oh, that's true. So that's the, okay. So it'd be interesting to go back and seeing what kind of minute these yeah. things yeah. fall and, into play here. And the friends rescue him like, no, no, couples therapy, couples therapy. That's that's probably the midpoint, I would say, because that's where it gets really serious and they both think, okay, mission accomplished. Okay, so mm-hmm. maybe they are at a down point and it starts to go back up at that point there. Because, mm-hmm. so. I mean, if, if he lets her walk out, the story's over. Yeah. So now is where we get some ambiguously named beats um, and... 
this is where we'll have to really kind of think it through. The 10th beat is called Bad Guys Close In. Well, we don't really have any bad guys in this, but uh, it's the midpoint to the next big beat in the movie. He says this is the hardest part of the screenplay, but this is where the hero finds himself in a midpoint. All seems fine, but even though the bad guys, be they people, a phenomenon or a thing, are temporarily defeated and the hero's team seems to be in a perfect sync. We're not done yet. This is the point where the bad guys decide to regroup and send in the heavy artillery. It's the point where internal dissent, doubt, and jealousy begin to disengage the hero's team. Hmm. Do we see this in there? Couples therapy. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. This happens between 55 and 75. Now we get to page 75 and this one is the 11th beat. It's called All is Lost. So All is Lost the opposite of the midpoint. So if we were up at the midpoint, we're down. If we're down at the midpoint, we're up here. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also the point of the script labeled false defeat for even uh, though all looks black. It's just temporary, but it seems like total defeat. All aspects of the hero life are in shambles, wreckage abound, no hope. The Where we party. Well, maybe, but that's this is way early for that <laughs> 75. That's an hour and five hour and 15 minutes in. Right. I'm not sure if that's going to be. Is the idea of them settling into a long term relationship the bad guys? Maybe. Because I mean, they're the movie of, is about them casually dating for 10 days. The notion of a long term relationship is kind of the bad guy. Yeah. I'm looking to see what other kind of examples he has here. Because the all hope is lost moment it happens at the Delauer party. And that's where I think this is at. This next beat is beat 12, which is the dark night of the soul. So really kind of gives it a nice beefy name here. I was going to um, say. And uh, it says, so now you're in the middle of the death moment and the all is lost point. But how does your character experiencing this moment feel about it? The question is answered in this section. It can last five seconds or five minutes, but it's in there and it's vital. It's the point, as the name suggests, that it's darkest right before the dawn. It is a point just before the hero reaches way deep down and pulls out last best idea that will save himself and everyone around him but at that moment the idea is nowhere in sight this is the delauer party Mm -hmm. even though it's listed at 75 to 85 in pages so they push this way back Mm -hmm. um but yeah then we get to our last couple which is the break into three this is going into act three page 85 where the a and the b storyline line up and it kind of moves us to the end of the movie Mm -hmm. um and then we get our finale and then we which is 85 to 110 and that is our big stupid chase scene mm. and then we get to our final image which is supposed to be the opposite of the opening image so you know i think one of the b stories could be michelle's character in this movie because it may not be at exactly the right time uh, you know that's a fair point because but, comes, the guy comes back yeah mike yeah he yeah. comes back to her apartment and she thinks it's you know their takeout that they've ordered yeah and this is you know if you're following along with this and a lot of people do right like mm-hmm. there's a he has a beat sheet it's not it's not just listed like like it is here right mm-hmm. i'm showing them in the in the video but our one listener can't see but there is like a visual beat board that writers like would carry around and they can just put their story up on this thing and this guy is very very influential with how he does these things but just because it's listed here on these doesn't mean it actually has to happen at those times right i'll point to rocky we get our b story before we get to our catalyst in that one mm-hmm. right because he goes out on a date before he even gets offered the fight right and his relationship with adrian is not the story anyway it's the that's, right, that's the know? b story but yeah. that but because our catalyst comes so late in the game we have to have something to keep us engaged until then yeah Mm -hmm. so that's where that is so really that can come anywhere the fact that it's on 30 if it hasn't happened yet by then you got to put it in there Mm -hmm. not saying that's to say this is a very very solid thing to follow through and if a movie follows that to a t that doesn't mean it's necessarily 
boilerplate, right? And to do a, a simpler kind of convention around storytelling that I remember us reading about when the guys who wrote South Park, Trey and Matt, talk about their kind of idea about storytelling. If the next beat is and then you've messed up. Yep. And so after the Delauer party, there's not a, what do you say the two words are you need to use because of or because everything has the, to cause the thing, the yeah. next story, right? And there's not really a big because between between the, the big public breakup at the party and then Ben reads the article. There's yeah. not a huge because there. It just kind of feels like an and then, oh, the magazine makes its way into his hands. Right. You know, thanks to that uh, one of those complimentary characters. Yeah, I'm trying to I'm trying to remember what they were, and so I have to go look it up because I want to know. But you're right; it's you can't have and then it's uh but or therefore. Yeah. But then this happens. Therefore, this happens. But then this happens. Right. And for people that feel a certain way about South Park, the storytelling is there. Always has been there, yeah. even when they're telling the goofiest stories. Yeah, their stuff can be so stupid, but yeah, if if you don't have one scene causing something to happen in the next scene, then it's is boring, right? Right. This happens, and then this happens, and then this happens. Mm-hmm. Now that I think about it, that might be kind of where my problem lies in this one a little bit because when we have our little fun and game section in there, nothing seems to push it forward. It's always we have the first date and then we have the second date and then mm-hmm. we have the third date. Yeah, a lot, lot of hijinks, nothing really yeah. causing each other. Correct. Yeah, no, that's a fair point. In fact, you could theoretically make it better if the stakes of him wanting to leave were raised at every single date. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. Yeah. So like when she sends him to the concession stand to get the drink, mm-hmm. at some point he'd be like, really? That, um, and especially after the Princess Sophia episode. Oh man. Oh, that was bad. I mean, it was funny. Don't get me wrong, but well, I, would, even... I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have gone not 10 <laughs> seconds left in the freaking game. Hey, yeah. no. Try to buy it. Well, drink. and as I pointed out, most concession stands are closed by then anyway. That's yeah. true. If you and I had done that a day, it was like, nope, we're getting some on the way home. I'm not, uh, we're, but, uh, anyway, so wrapping this thing up, putting a bow on it. So Trevor, we kind of got a little bit of your opinion on the rewatch there, but is there anything else you want to flesh out? No, this is, uh, one of the reasons we do this is because I had a very favorable opinion of this movie up until I watched a rewatch and now it's uh, thumbs down for me. <laughs> In the toilet. Yep. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll mention it because I, I think it feels natural to give Heather the last take on this. On my rewatch, I will say that with a more critical eye, there's a couple of small things I didn't enjoy, but that also is viewing it through the lens of, well, it's a romantic comedy. There are certain things to expect. A certain amount of complexity maybe could be there, maybe couldn't be there. One or two plot holes, but I, I will say my enjoyment was probably at or around the level it was the first time. Uh, if only because the company feels a certain way about it. Speaking of that, Heather, what do you think? I still love this movie. I will still watch this movie again. It is like one of my go-tos if the kids are in bed and you're out DJing and the house is quiet. If I find it, I'd be like, oh yeah, I'll watch that again. I will say now that I watched it with you, yeah, maybe the the side characters are a little bland, a little boring. Maybe they need a little more of a storyline there. But I mean, I still love the movie. I'll watch mm-hmm. it again. Yeah. I'm just, I'm wondering too, if, if part of my <laughs> thing is I can't see Matthew McConaughey like this anymore mm-hmm. because in 2003 this is what he was doing this was it he was in every other romantic comedy movie that was it right and now he's an Oscar winner and he's all he does is really dramatic stuff and mm-hmm. I can't not look at him anymore and not see like the character he played in True Detective on HBO or see his Oscar winning performance in Dallas Buyers Club like I know what he's capable of doing and he's not showing it here mm-hmm. but in 2003 this is all I thought he was well and, and a lot of actors take that trajectory right I mean he Ledger, 10 Things I Hate About You, relatively, I mean, I would say relatively unknown around the time that was made. You know, coming to, even the ones I mentioned, Coming to America, Groundhog Day, 40-Year-Old Virgin, a lot of those people went 
on to star in very successful, serious roles at that particular part of their career. I'm thinking Carell. I mean, because he's he's because he had done serious roles before that and, and did after that. No, he's more more recent. I think it wasn't like I'm thinking Little Miss Sunshine, which was 06, I think. What year did he do Foxcatcher? That was after he was off the office. That was after the office. Okay. That was 12 or 13, somewhere around there. 14, Mm -hmm. maybe. He doesn't really do those, these type of 40 year old virgin or, or Mm -hmm. any of those Apatow type movies anymore. So, Mm -hmm. but yeah, you're right. Like he's gone through that trajectory. So I don't know. Next year, 40 year old virgin will be 20 years old. We land on that. If we rewatch that, are we going to have some different thoughts on that one? Oh man. Maybe. I, it makes me a little nervous because yeah. I have a, I, that film was a lot of fun. And the, you know, when you first watched it mm-hmm. and really kind of struck that balance. But speaking of what's next, I guess it's time to fire up Computron and have it tell us what our movie is going to be for the next month. One last time for 2023, we'll have to reset Computron with a 120 new movie titles. But you um, love to make lists. So. I do love to make lists. So I'm ready to go. Let's do this. Trevor's in paradise. Yeah. And on my spreadsheets too. So, all right. Fire it up here. No whammies. Let's see what we got. And all right. No exorcist, Heather. You survived the year. Yes. Okay. No Groundhog Day either, Scotty. Sorry about that. But disappointing. Computron must know Christmas is next month. So it gave us a Christmas movie. Oh, fun. Oh, what did we get? 40 years old, Trading Places. Oh, That's man. That's a Christmas movie, right? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe by strictest definition, that might be part of our discussion. Are, are we but, talking uh, like diehard Christmas movie here or? Yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, no, excellent movie, though, man. Dan Aykroyd, Eddie Murphy, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis. Oh, that's going to be good. That's uh, going to be good. I'm ready for that. I haven't seen that one in, in years, years and years and years and years. So uh, Plus, uh, one of a small, super niche group of movies to teach general America about stocks. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, be interesting. <laughs> that and The Big Short. Yep. Oh, The Big Short. Oh, fantastic. That movie was amazing. <laughs> Can't wait for that to be 20 years old. We can talk about that one. That's right. So. Well, folks, we're so glad you chose to join us for this takedown of romantic comedies and How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. Please make sure to follow the discussion with us as we're getting ready to check out Trading Places. Follow us on our socials. Uh, have those conversations with us and we're really excited to encourage you to check out an old film with new eyes 